Welcome to the No Picks After Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. You know, we are live on location at Snug Books. I'm so excited on Harford Road. Shout out to Snug Books for having us today. So excited for this episode. No Picks After Dark Podcast is sponsored by OpenWorks Baltimore. Enrollment for Maker Camp at OpenWorks is now open, offering half day experiences for kids ages 8 to 12 in digital design, drones, and sewing. Maker Camp is a great way for kids to explore their creative side this summer. Sessions run July 11th to August 12th. Scholarships available. Learn more at www.openworksbmore.org backslash youth-programs backslash. You know I'm always trying to bring the summer heat and you know it's going to be coming out in May or June. I don't know yet, but this is going to come out with some heat. I'm so excited to have the guest on today. This guest is hard to catch up with. I'm going to tell you, this guy is everywhere. I mean, when I, mean, when I hit, reached out to him, he was in Paris, France, hanging out. And I'm like, hey, hit me whack when you get back in the country, brother. So we finally made it happen. Without further ado, Mr. Justin Finn, how are you? Hey, thank you for having me. This is like, I've, I have done a lot of interviews, and this is absolutely the coolest setting of anything that I've done. So thanks for having me today. Hey, I appreciate you coming up. I always tell people to come to the Northeast. It's a, it's, I call it Disney World up here. It's different out here, you know? <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. I always tell everybody off. Tell us, where are you from? Where are you originally from? Like, tell us about your childhood. I'm from uh, Anne Arundel County, uh, outside of Annapolis, and uh, went to University of Maryland, worked for the school paper, and I worked at the Baltimore Sun my entire career for 17 years until I left and joined uh, the Baltimore Banner uh, this year. So uh, this is my home. I, I live in the city, and I enjoy telling uh, the stories of the city. Exciting. That is so exciting. Um, I'm happy that you're here. I mean, we've had so many people who are like, are you going to interview Justin Fenton? Are you going to interview him? I'm like... This guy's probably busy, but when I reached out to you, thank you so much for getting back. I mean, I was surprised. I didn't think you would reach back out. I'm sure like people shoot you in DMs and say, "Hey, I want to talk to you," but you're probably pretty busy. Probably lately, yes, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I've been. I, I know you've been making big moves in the podcasting world, having a lot of big guests. So I'm excited to be a part of that uh, that uh, roster. Hey, I appreciate you. I definitely appreciate you. So. What is your favorite childhood memory? I ask every guest this growing up. Like, what's your favorite childhood memory growing up? Oh, my gosh. Probably involves mischief. When <laughs> 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 you put me on the spot like that, I, I guess, uh, you know, I remember, sh- you know, shooting water balloons with a, like a catapult thing that we had in the neighborhood and just shooting them across the neighborhood. Who, who even knew where they landed? But uh, gosh, and, and we used to do this thing called uh, detouring where we would put uh, traffic cones in the road and detour traffic into places where people, you know, they wanted to go one place, we'd make them go the other way. So I don't know why those are the first things that come <laughs> to mind, but uh, yeah, mischief in Anne Arundel County. I love that. I love that. I always tell people, because you are wearing the Orioles, and um, my favorite player was Eddie Murray. And it was like, Eddie, Eddie, and my dad and I would go to the game together. It was just, such a, just a moment, and I just, I can't wait when I take my kids to the Orioles games. And have I, I was at the game where he hit his 500th home run, but we left, I think there was a rain delay, and we left and listened to him hit it on the radio. Oh, it's a man. big mistake, but uh, <laughs> I was a big Cal Ripken guy. I was growing up when he when he hit, uh, broke the streak, and I went, remember going out. I gathered all the Cal Ripken things that I could, um, cereal boxes, you know, Pepsi, or uh, Coke cans, and you know, had hundreds of his baseball cards. So yeah. So were you? Been... Did you like Memorial Stadium? I mean, I thought it was a classic. Did you? Or were you? Were I was you, just you... talking to somebody about that this morning. I am certain I went, but I don't remember going, and I can't even fathom how that many people converged on Waverly on a regular basis. It seems hard to believe without highways. We we take for granted that like the easy access of uh, Camden Yards and Raven Stadium, but uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't remember that. <laughs> okay, so no, your Morris Stadium used to be packed, man. That was the spot. I remember just, you know, going to Waverly. We would park over by Cloverland and walk all the way up from there because the parking was, it was hard because it was in the neighborhood. People live all around the area. So I always like talking about that. So you said you, were you always into writing? Was that something that was, was that somebody in your family or did you like, how did that become a passion and love for it? No, I, I get asked a lot if I'm related to, I think Tom Fenton, who was on CBS here for, for many years, but no, I, it's, I'm the first in my family. Um, honestly, uh, growing up, um, you know, wasn't particularly good at sports. I tried to play soccer as long as I could until it really wasn't viable. And, and as I was making a plan for college, I didn't have any, activities <laughs> i wasn't doing anything um and and i you know we always had two newspapers de delivered to our house we got the capital and we got the sun and i delivered uh, the capital i was a paper boy i had them on my bike and i would you know throw them into people's driveways and um i just decided that might be something worth doing and as i was doing it i i, I enjoyed doing it it took me out of my comfort zone i think i'm naturally awkward <laughs> and I don't love to, to talk to, to people, but it, it gets me, I, I, I get to engage people and ask them to tell me about their lives. I get to go places that I wouldn't normally get to go. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it just kind of stuck in, in high school. I became the editor of my high school paper and went to college and did um, reporting and editing for the Diamondback, the campus newspaper. Now, when you, your first, your first only job was the Baltimore Sun, correct? Yeah. When you got that job, was that a dream job for you? Yeah, no, I did never expected to be hired there out of, out of college. I had a summer internship, and everybody told me, you know, you're gonna have to get your feet wet somewhere else. You're gonna have to go to New Hampshire or Florida, and you know, uh, and then maybe we'll take you back. And uh, I got hired after that summer internship. So definitely a dream come true to have so many bylines in the local um, paper, and you know, my parents get you know d delivered things like that. You and I were talking right before we got on camera, and I was telling you how I grew up with the Baltimore Sun. It was the thing you know to be like you're in a paper wow like you know i used to watch my uncle go through the sports section and go in the line by line and reading the articles that were there so i remember just that was really passionate back in late 80s early 90s for me just growing up and being the Baltimore son so when you got that gig did you know did you ever think you would be where you are right now just curious like when you started did you ever think you'd be like Big time writer, like one of the biggest writers in the country, I would say. Well, I mean, I, I have to answer that in a, with negative thoughts because, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I joined. The, I was lucky enough to join the Sun at a time when it still had foreign bureaus. It had a national staff. It had, you know, three hundred reporters. Um, just all, you know, a thick newspaper with lots of information and lots of opportunities. Really, you know, sort of it, when I when I joined there out of college, it seemed like I could do anything for the sun. You know, I, I could travel the world. I could travel the country. And over the years, you know, it really consolidated a lot. And it's the story of local news in general. It's not unique to the sun. Um, you know, the internet and just the way people consume news now. It just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And um, you know, so, but I mean, yes, I do consider myself lucky to have been able to work there and tell so many stories, you know, get on the city police beat when, when I did, it was pretty young, had a lot to learn still, but I learned on, on, on the job. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm still here because there's still so much to learn. There's still so much the, the community needs reporters who have been here for a while, who know their way around, who know, who know the history and the context. And, um, yeah. I love hearing that. I love learning. I love that you really like are part of the city. You're a part of fabric. You understand about the city. You know, I wasn't a part of Twitter, and I was telling this earlier. I wasn't a part of Twitter. And I remember, I want to say eight to ten years ago, a friend said, she was showing me something on Twitter, and I was like, how did you know about that already? She's like, Justin Fenton, you got to check his Twitter out. And I'm like, Twitter, I don't even get down with that. <laughs> and I remember that 
when I got on Twitter, you were one of the first people I followed because you were really, you just really told it how it was and you had the beat and you understood that you had the pulse of the city. That's where I thought, you know, you're like, well, how does he know already before it's even in the alphabet stations, you know, but it was always great. And I was like, Tom friends, like you got to follow this guy. You know, I, I will put you in parallels. I think you are the David Simon kind of like back in the day, you know, just a, this, you are that person now. And how do you feel like that comparison? I mean, I, I, that's what I wanted. I, I wanted to have an authoritative presence like that. I wanted I wanted to, I felt like Twitter was a great outlet because there were so many things I was doing in the course of reporting that didn't make it into an article. You know, we would work all day on an article, work for maybe a week or months on an article. There's so much stuff that happens along the way or stuff that, that just won't end up getting covered. And it was just like, outlet to like put that stuff and I'm also very cognizant that at covering crime and corruption and things like that I have a very negative <laughs> feed and so I really consciously try to balance it out by going around town doing things making sure that I'm showing that this is my home I like living here there, there are lots of things to do you know I went walking recently uh, in Herring Run Park and took pictures I want to make sure that it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, diverse you know 360 kind of view of the city. Like I like that you said that you came to Herring Park. I don't I don't know what part of the city you live in, but just you're making your way around the city. Mm -hmm, and I'm absolutely. glad you came up here to Northeast. Now you're like, oh, they have some stuff going on up here that nobody really talks about. Absolutely what happy to be here. This new bookstore, Snug Books. I didn't you know opened up in November, so shout out, <laughs> shout out Snug Books. There you go. Shout out. Please come and check them out. They're open uh, only closed on Tuesday, I think, and they're here every day. So shout out to them. So. Let's get into a little bit. Um, you're an investigative reporter. How does one even begin? How, how do you even start being an investigative reporter? How does that even happen? You know, I, I think that everyone should be investigating if they're doing a good job reporting. But, um, you know, I think um, you, you really do. I, I think that people think that the media works with, like, somebody in a – you know, some <laughs> people in suits, you know, with, the, you know, the, uh, in the dark room decide what the coverage is going to be. It's it's really ground up. You know, the, re the reporters are asked to go out, gather things, be in touch with people, show up places and bring and tell us what's going on. It's, it, you know, there are certainly instances where editors will say, we have an idea, we want you to do this. But mostly we go out and look for things. And and I, that's what I love about my job is that every day is like, OK, what am I going to do today? What am I going to look into? What kind of public records request am I going to file? Which courtroom am I going to take a stop in which neighborhood am I going to go out to and um you know so it's a broad mandate um but that gives a lot of flexibility to, to look into different things what was the coolest story you've worked on besides obvious what we talked about what we're going to talk about in the future but in a minute but what was the coolest story up until a couple of years ago before this we before your book came out what was the coolest oh. story you, that you could say were like wow you know I actually I actually, I've done so many stories and so many interesting stories, so many devastating stories. It's funny that one of the ones that comes to mind, actually, after all these years, is one of the very first things I did. Um, I, one of our photographers saw an ad in the local newspaper in Hartford County. That was my first assignment for the paper was Hartford County. It was for a homeschooled football team. So there was kids who were homeschooled, wanted to start a football team. And they joined um, a league of like private Christian schools. And these kids had such great... You know, they, the, the, one of the one of the things I did for the story was I went to the homecoming game for Riverdale Baptist, which is like a powerhouse high school football team, like at the time, at least one of the best in the country. And they would schedule much like a college football team schedules an easy opponent early in the season so they can crush them. They scheduled the homeschool football team. And, you know, they had alumni come back and 
you know, mascot. And these are kids who don't are never going to have that experience. And they got their butts kicked. And But it was an interesting story about perseverance and sort of like bonding. Uh, that was my first, I think, my first Sunday story in the sun. Um, and I also got to write about Cal Ripken's minor league baseball stadium, how it was sort of ruining the town's finances. So mm. I feel like my, my stories on the city crime beat have been um, a little less uplifting. But uh, those, those actually strangely come to mind after all these years. All right, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. We're going to talk about him moving and leaving the Baltimore Sun, hitting the banner. We're going to talk a little bit about the banner. We're going to talk about We Own the City, a little thing, a little book. You've probably never heard of it or a show. But we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll be right back to these messages, folks. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there's something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, online ordering, carry out, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Hartford Road, open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly partnered with Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Hartford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-watering cuisine from falafels to scallops and everyone's favorites, honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m., Tuesday through Saturday, and for brunch, Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials. No Picks After Dark is sponsored by Snug Books, an independent bookstore serving Northeast Baltimore and beyond. In addition to featuring new books for all ages, the store also carries cards, stationery, gifts, games, and more. Visit snugbooks.com to shop online, learn more about the store, read our latest newsletter, and find a calendar of events, or come browse the store in person. Snug Books is located at 4717 Harford Road, next to Zeke's Coffee in Hamilton, Laurelville. There is free parking behind the store and open hours are Tuesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we are back on the No Picture Dark podcast. So exciting episode. We have Mr. Justin Fenton here. How are you doing, sir? Hello. Good, good. He is now with the banner. Yes, Baltimore Banner. New startup, new site. Nonprofit, um, you know, we tried to get the Sun sold um, to a, a businessman and from from Maryland uh, who wanted to turn it into a nonprofit, and make it more uh, serving the, the community better, and the owners of the Sun wouldn't sell. So he said, "You know what? I still want to do that. I want to give it a shot." So it's a com- we're starting it completely from scratch. Um, it's going to be online only um, and uh, getting staffed up. Hopefully, launching uh, next month in June. Um, but trying to bring more community flavor, get more people from the community involved in different ways, and I'm really excited about what uh, we're building. 
Hey, one of my friends is actually on, is working for the banner, um, Simone. She is Charm Sea Table. Oh, yes. It's the food. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see what she's talking about. And uh, she's a really good friend of mine, a good friend of the show. She's on the show about two years ago. Yeah, we have this something called the Creatives in Residence, which is a way to like get people involved that maybe aren't like journalists per se or, or can't commit their time to the banner, but still have them under like our umbrella and feature their content and, you know, use their expertise. That also sounds like a cool thing. Hopefully I can apply for it a couple of years from now. <laughs> so the banner, was it, you've been there for, you were at the Baltimore for 17 years, right? Yeah. How hard was it for you to leave? Like, I mean, that's home. I mean, that's like, you know, was it really hard or was it like a no brainer? Because of where, but which for what you said already, they didn't want to invest, the, the, the people in Chicago didn't want to invest in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, it was a tough decision, and yet, like, the way they pitched me on it, the way they talked about it, I was really excited to do it. But, yeah, it's definitely a weird to leave a place you've been for so long. It it, been, it, it was difficult to work there. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, it just keeps shrinking, and, you know, the do more with less thing, that's what they ask you. They say, let's keep, we're going to keep doing the same things we've always done. As a paper of record, there's a lot of obligation at the Sun to do things just because. Like, we do things just because we feel like we have to, and not we're not thinking necessarily about... What, we really have to do that? And then the banner wants to have a different mandate about like how we choose what to cover, how we approach different things. And uh, you know, I hope the readers hold us to that because that's what we're that's what we're all about, trying to do things differently, smarter, um, have more solutions. You know, there's a lot of problems in the city. I think they need to be covered, they need to be exposed, but we want to also talk about solutions and not, not just pointing out the bad, but like what should be done. How, how are people working to fix it? Actually, one of my last stories, my, my last story for the sun was about a program for youth in Carrollton Ridge, which is just a neighborhood in Southwest Baltimore that has so many challenges. It's probably the toughest neighborhood in the entire city. I was there last night for a fire and a murder. Um, but it was hopeful. It was talking about how this program is reaching the kids and they needed more funding. And that's the kind of stuff I hope to do more of at the banner. I love hearing those. And that's what this podcast is about, sharing positive stories. I mean, I always tell people, you know, I was on an interview for WBAL. They're like, well, why don't you tell me about the negativity? I'm like, because you guys do it. ABC, CBS, NBC does. I don't have to do it. I can turn it on for two minutes and it can tell you everything about what happened. But that's why this podcast has thrived, because the positive stories, people that are doing amazing things in the city that you want to know about. We want to talk about those type of things. And I feel like that's really – I know that we have to pay attention to negative stuff. But there are a lot of people doing amazing things in the city that we need to shine a light on. Positive news is also hard. Like, we know from metrics that, like, simply writing a positive story, people say they want it, but they don't actually (laughs) often read it. But it's about doing it the right way. It's about, like, going at it in an interesting way, in a compelling way. Again, maybe highlighting a problem, but then with a solution. So we're hoping we can can hit that sweet spot of, like, solutions-oriented journalism that also tries to solve problems. Okay, so and how's the banner? Banner won't be a physical paper. It'll be... Online, correct? Yeah, and I know we'll lose some readers that way. I know, I, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of people who still like to hold it in their hands, but we think that's the way things are going, and there won't be the overhead of the production costs. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be online only. Okay. Do you and do you know the price of it yet, or anything? In your- They're still messing with that, but there's also going to be all sorts of. You know, we're trying to figure figure out interesting ways to make sure that people in, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, West Baltimore, East Baltimore have access to it, and libraries and students, and they're they're like doing a lot of experimentation. I think that's another thing that's going to be part of our hallmark is like trying out all sorts of different things. But I know one thing's for sure: they're not going to do the yo-yo pricing that uh, my my <laughs> last job did. But you know, there's going to be a price, and that's going to be it. Uh, no uh, hidden. Uh, you know, games. Gotcha. All right. So we're going to talk about this. Okay. Talk about this, folks. We own this city. Okay. All right. I mean, there's, we're not going to talk about all day because there's someone moves on TV. You can catch it on HBO. 
can read the buy the book. Buy the book here. Snug books come by. Buy I'm book. signing copies. <laughs> he is signing copies today, okay? So let's find out how did we even, how do we even get here? Like, how did you even, like, when you found out about this, were you like, oh, my God? Or were you kind of like, this is Baltimore. I don't expect anything less or anything more. I mean, it definitely was surprising in the sense that I've covered a lot of corruption and misconduct scandals, but they always seem to be like one officer doing something wrong, you know, or it was a one-off, or they could say it was a one-off, and especially the period of time in which this happened. Sorry. <laughs> um, the period of time in which this happened, you know, this is post-Freddie Gray. This is a time when we're supposed to be having all this reform going on. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department is supposedly looking, you know, they're behind the scenes watching them very closely. And for this to be going on while they were being watched by the feds like that, it really raised the question of, like, what else is possible? Like, what else is going on? And sure enough, as I've continued to cover it, and it's unspooled un over the years, you know, we're finding out things going back even decades um, that are, that are it's shocking that this went on this long. So, okay, for a lot of my listeners who listen to the show and whatnot, can you give them a brief synopsis? Cause, Absolutely. Because okay, so, I will tell you, the majority of my audience is from Maryland, but then after that is D.C., it's Virginia, it's California, it's New York. So I have a lot of friends who we grew up watching The Wire because we were in college at that time. So... The Wire was The Wire. Now we have this. Give us a quick two-minute, three-minute breakdown of what happened. How did you come about this? Because then, then I'll follow up some questions. Go ahead. Yeah. No, this, the Gun Trace Task Force is, is what it's focused on. This was a unit of plainclothes officers. So that's different from, like, undercover officers who are, like, pretending to be somebody else or whatever. These are, under, these are officers who wear, like, jeans, backwards hats, you know, hoodies, and they get to ride around in unmarked cars. And they're, they're utilized by the Baltimore Police Department, but also police departments all over the country use plainclothes officers to sort of do proactive policing. So in Baltimore, they call them jump out boys and knockers because they got a reputation for being rough with people. They would pull up, jump out, you know, everybody against the wall kind of thing, searching pockets. And the police department utilizes these units to, you know, there's patrol officers who respond to calls, you know, cat in a tree, car accident. There's detectives who solve a crime after it happens. These officers are supposed to try to find stuff before it happened. And what it turned out they were doing was they were using that so-called, you know, gray area they were allowed to work in to rob people of money, steal drugs, resell drugs, uh, search people without probable cause, pull people over with little justification, lied about it. Uh, and in some cases, there was a, a evidence planting that was documented and came out. So this all came to light through a federal investigation that started really about suburban drugs, um, overdoses County, in, right? in Baltimore County and Hartford County. Mm -hmm. And they got one of these officers on a wiretap and they just went from there. So when you're telling this story, you're like, were you a little nervous writing this book? I mean, just because, you know, you know, you're dealing with police officers. You're dealing with, you know, telling a real story. And were you nervous writing this when it's like writing this book? And like, did you ever feel nervous for your, you and your family writing this book? Because this is a pretty big book and this is a pretty big story. Yeah, I, I was. Um, you know, again, these are officers who use like GPS trackers illegally and broke into people's houses. Like in one case, they dressed up as mailmen and, and broke into a house. Um, I don't know why you would dress up as a mailman to do that, but that was that was the story that came out. But I mean, so yeah, it's a little unnerving. I was also communicating with people who, you know, were fearful for their safety and that you feel a certain pressure to make sure you were looking out for them. I was communicating with people in prison, some that, you know, were really sticking their neck out to talk to me. Um, I, I remember I, at one point I had, a, I got so paranoid, I had a conversation. Uh, I turned on 
uh, I put Pearl Jam on my laptop and turned it up as loud as I could. And I took a phone call in my closet with the music blaring. <laughs> I don't know if that was wow. necessary, wow. <laughs> but, but it felt in the moment that like I should be better safe than sorry. But, uh, you know, again, but I'm as a reporter, you know, I'm often talking to people who've experienced these things and I, I don't necessarily feel as though, you know, I'm in danger, but that I have to look out for people that I'm, I'm talking to. So, yeah. So it was interesting. I had a conversation with, uh, uh, a parent yesterday. I was at my kids swimming lessons and he was not from Baltimore. And he said, you know, I, I said, yeah, I'm interviewing the guy who wrote the book. And he was like, yeah, I watched the show on HBO. I hope that's not real. And so I wanted to put that, mind, put that thought in your mind because that's the reason why I said people watch from all over. A lot of people may not think this is real. Yeah. Um, uh, can you explain, expand how real this really is to people who are listening? Because I told them, listen to the episode when this comes out. And he followed, but explain a little bit more how serious this was. I mean, these are these guys were above the law. Yeah, I mean, the, the the great thing about this story, if you can call it that, is that a lot of the officers who did these things cooperated. They flipped. Um, there was a similar scandal in Philadelphia right before this happened. And all the cops sort of stuck together and went to trial, and they beat the charges. In this case, they had a lot of evidence. The feds definitely had a lot of evidence. But they, they uh, I think four of the six officers initially charged cooperated and said, you got me. I'll tell you everything. And the th stuff that they detailed, again, went back years and years and years. They did not fear getting caught. Um, but the, the, we had the benefit of hearing from them and explaining, how did you get away with it? Um, you know, again, overtime fraud, um, evidence planting, BB guns, drugs, um, you know, just, but I, actually the thing that really, I think that I, uh, I think was most instructive to me actually was like the casual, like everyday traffic stops where they violated people's rights. You know, the body cameras came on uh, towards the tail end of this scandal when they were being investigated. And I requested all the camera footage. You see footage when a cop like pulls somebody over and gets a gun and they say, great job. You know, you followed your instincts. They had a tag light out. You smelled marijuana. You got a gun. Great job. I watched footage where they didn't get anything from people, where they were pulling people over on a gas station parking lot, uh, a, a car full of four young black men. They drove five feet off the pump and they got pulled over for not having seatbelts on. Mm. Now, come on. I mean, that would never happen to me. <laughs> I don't, that. It shouldn't happen to anybody. And then they were going to certain neighborhoods and being like, hey, you don't have your seatbelts on, everybody out and searching the car and didn't find anything. And that's something that I think black people in the city experienced for a long time. A lot of the stories that came out maybe are not surprising to people, but they came out like, you know, very vividly and authoritatively through this investigation. And I try to piece that all together in the book. Um, and, and the TV show is based on the book. Um, it's, 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 uh, depicts these real events. You know, I'm glad that, that it talks about that in the book because that's very, very, very important. Because I know that I've gone through the situations like that where you get pulled over just because the, the color of your skin. And people are like, oh, no, no, that just ha it happens more so than you think. And I think I'm glad that you can write something about this. So the people who say, oh, it never happens, you see it. Yeah, You no, see it, and you know what's going on. One of the things I wanted to do with the book and the show was like validate the experiences people have had for years um, and also offer, like, give a, a window into how this police department works. And then for people who don't believe these things happen to be like, Yes, they do. <laughs> Here's proof. And I, you know, the notes of the book where I, I write about where I got certain information. I was very, very, um, I was, sometimes I read books and I, I go, wow, how did they get that? And I flip to the back trying to see like any sort of an annotation. And there isn't any. I annotated like every single sentence of this, of this book because I wanted people to be able to, to see where everything came from. 
How long did it take you to write this book? I remember following you on Twitter. And you're like, I'm working on something really, really big. I, I remember all this. And you were just like, low key. But like, how long did it take you to write this book? From I mean, I, I got the benefit of having, you know, covered it as it was playing out. So, I mean, if I, if I chart it from the beginning, it started in 2017 when the indictments came down. I really, I took leave. It took me a while to get the book deal. Uh, people do not trust a newspaper reporter could handle this material. <laughs> it took a while. Um, but uh, I took about six months off from the sun in the end of 2019 to really just bear down and continue reporting and write. So it was an intense six-month period. But really, the reporting goes back a couple of years. So how? And continues. <laughs> still, it still is going. No, so how was how did it feel when you got that call from HBO and said, "Hey, we kind of want to do a, a show about this"? Like, well, was I knew this early on. No, so so David Simon was the one who told he called me while the trial was happening and said, "You got to write a book." And I was like, "Well, that's a nice idea, but how am I going to do that?" And he introduced me to his literary agent, um, and he said that there was talks about making a show. But you know, I've heard you hear about projects that are announced and don't actually happen. So I never took for granted that it was going to happen. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, they, they said they were interested. And when you when you got the people behind the wire saying, we want to come back to Baltimore and do another show, I mean, that's that's really, it was very exciting, but I, I made sure not to get ahead of myself. And it never felt real until they started filming. I was part of the writer's room. I got to sit in with them as they were developing the plot and, and which characters there was going to be. Um, but like, you know, it always felt like, oh, something's going to come up. You know, the COVID was happening. You know, they'll, they'll never film this during a pandemic uh they did. but they did yeah and uh here we are so so what do you say to the people who say man like i'm the wire first thing somebody out of town let's take me to the wire <laughs> all right baltimore has that black mark on because the wire okay then they say this book now you got the show coming out people are gonna say this here's another negative mark on baltimore how do you feel about that like do you feel like i mean i know you had to tell the story but people from out of town might say Wow, I just want to see Baltimore just just lawlessness. It's crazy. No, people like, in I'm, town are, are you know don't like that. That's what it's known for. Right. Um, no, I mean I think so. I think it's a really complicated thing, right? I mean, I think that um, you know, it's weird how Baltimore's associated with the wire in the sense that like there's shows filmed all over the country and people don't always like associate. You know, they're not like in, in New York, NYPD Blue. Like, it's just a show that happened to be in New York. But I guess it's because it's so real and people people realize that. I mean, what I think the, the answer that we give when we're asked this question is sort of, you know, these are things that really happen. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of people who wouldn't, who don't want um, the problems to be, have a light shined on them. To just, we'd rather just have it all be Inner Harbor and flamingos and, <laughs> you know, crab cakes. And, you know, what, we don't want to talk about that stuff. But this city has like really, really serious problems. You can drive for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles on the west side in particular and see nothing but blight and the idea that we need to suppress that and suppress what this police department has done to people in order of you know civic pride i th i take a exception to that while understanding it and again that's when i m mentioned earlier making my twitter feed very cognizant of like if i see something nice or i'm doing something nice i want to make sure i share that but we're telling a very specific story about something that does happen in this city and has happened in the city and it's told told accurately and it's also i know it'll be associated with baltimore but this this happens in other cities that are similarly situated if there's cities that have um you know uh, high violence in certain neighborhoods dr drug abuse police that are told go there and fix it and they're not held accountable these things are happening in other cities as well we're just using baltimore as that you know template to to tell it so yeah that's interesting so out of the book if i'm just a casual reader why would i go out and buy this book 
again, I think that it, it shows, you know, sort of something that was going on in an American city for years and years. I think that some of these things are, um, are hard to believe. Um, I try to get a wide range of viewpoints. It was very important to me. Somebody said it was like, did you do this on purpose, like, like, like The Wire? And, and it's like, no, I, I did it. I wanted to make sure I had a range of viewpoints. I think you know it's important for people to hear from someone who dealt drugs. It's important to hear from a dirty cop. It's important to hear from somebody, a cop caught in the middle of all this, who like kind of didn't know what was going on. Because I think people assume, well, everybody must know. Everybody must be doing it. And I talked to a lot of people who I think credibly said, we did not know all that was going on. But here's what we did know. Here's what we observed. So I try to explain the haze of the situation of like how you could be around this, how it is that not everybody knew about it and it wasn't addressed. And I think um, those things can be applicable to you know, different cities. And, and it's just it's just eye opening, really, I think um, the city, our city's been through a lot in recent years. And um, you know, it's sort of put it I got to put it all together in one, one book, all my, my years covering the city, I, I brought that that knowledge and those contacts and um, just kind of pulled it all together. It's really a story of like the last 15 years in a way. So yeah, gotcha. So, you know, I appreciate you coming in. Like, I mean, I appreciate you hanging out. What is something you want people to walk away from this interview you talk with me um just the audience listening just me and you conversating what do you want them to walk away from this conversation i want i want them to support local news i think you know i i wrote a book that got turned into a show but i am not uh you know the next great showrunner. <laughs> i'm not going to hollywood i'm not i don't have the tv bug i you know local journalism is important um you know the banner is a new venture and it, and frankly we've got some funding to start up but you know we're gonna need this isn't a sure thing <laughs> this is a startup we've got to make it work you know i think our owner has said he's given us five years you know we, we need support and so i want to i want i think it's important to, to to talk about the work we do because it it is real people doing it, and um, you know we we want to be accountable to the readers and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, support local journalism is my uh, takeaway. All right, so I will always use every guest at the end, so it's always a speed round, okay. real quick. Oh boy! All right, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Crabs or crab cakes? Oh, you know, <laughs> I do like. I just I like it all. I like the crab cake, yeah. Oh, so you don't like getting your hands dirty? Because you can turn you. I mean, your phone's off at that point. You can't touch the phone. You know it's gonna be nasty and crabby. Because you, you can, know, it's the best conversation, I think. Yeah, I mean, you, you I, I like the fact that it's it's just like it's it's like you know a thing of peanuts that where they're already out of the shells. But at the same time, there's a lot of fun in doing it. So maybe maybe I'll say crabs actually. Well, if you do say crab cake, gotta go to Coco's down the street. They're, <laughs> yes. they're closed right now, but Coco's down the street. I will say that. Yeah. Um, beach or do you like skiing? Oh, beach, beach. Yeah. All right. For chicken wings, flats or drums? Flats or drums? Yeah. Uh, That's uh, a big controversial. That's a big controversy. I mean, drums. Some people like drums. Some people like flats. I guess drums. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Blue cheese or ranch? Oh, blue cheese. Yeah. That's good. All right. Yeah. yeah like Some of these I just know. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, my gosh. I... I I'm so bad at retaining stuff like that. Like I, I, I always, I'm always impressed when people answer a question like that quickly and have an answer because I don't have one. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I'm not trying to punt. I'm not trying to cheat. I don't know. <laughs> I no don't, problem. Don't know. No problem. And thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming up here. Snug Books is open every day, every day of the week. All right. Monday, Sunday. Sorry, Sunday. Go ahead, say it for me. Sunday to Thursday, ten to six. There you go. We go. I'm sure you Friday to Saturday, 10 to 7, okay? 9 to 7, sorry. 9 to 7. 
But thank you guys so much, Snug Books, for having us. We really appreciate it. There's some people in the audience. Thank you guys for showing up to sit today. Thank you, Mr. Fenton, for coming Absolutely. out. No, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Love, peace, and we're out. Baltimore Fiscal Partners is a boutique CPA firm specializing in accounting and consulting services for nonprofits, small businesses, and with experience running nonprofits and small businesses, they know that there's not always enough time at the end of the day for you to focus on your finances, whether it's monthly bookkeeping or an annual audit, tax preparation, or consulting, nonprofit or small business. Baltimore Fiscal Partners provides full range or tailored solutions that keep your goals and budget in mind. Learn more about Baltimore Fiscal Partners online at BaltimoreFiscal.com or follow them at Baltimore Fiscal on Facebook and Instagram.